I'd like for us to turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians three, and we'll start reading at verse eighteen. Paul says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Reese, would you mind praying for us? I'd like to share some thoughts with you this morning on the subject of belonging to the Lord. Or as Paul says here in verse 23, you belong to Christ. And here in 1 Corinthians, you might remember that Paul's dealing with factions and dissensions and different people were forming groups and saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And then here in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul kind of undercuts that whole attitude by saying in verse 21, let no one boast in men. Why? Because all things belong to you. It's foolish to say, I'm of Paul, everything belongs to you. He goes on, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, see, all these people belong to you as teachers. You don't have to boast in one, you have all of them. Or the world, or life, or death, things present or things to come, all things belong to you. But then he goes on and he says, and you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. So, belonging to the Lord. This is something that comes up a lot in Scripture, especially in Paul's letters. It was something that was precious to him. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's. At his coming. You see, Christians are those who are Christ's. They belong to the Lord. Second Corinthians ten seven, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. We belong to him, belonging to Christ. I mean it's easy to read right over these kinds of things. But Paul is saying something incredible here, and it reveals to us the way that Paul thought about the Christian life. He thought about the Christian life in terms of belonging to Christ. What it meant to be a Christian to him was it meant belonging to the Lord. And then one more here in Acts 27, 23. This is Paul again. He says, For this very night an angel, now get this, an angel of the God to whom I belong, and whom I serve stood before me, the God to whom I belong. That was Paul's mindset. And if you're a Christian here this morning, the same is true of you. You belong to Him. You belong to the Lord. 
Now, kind of by way of introduction here, there's three basic ways in which something can come to belong to you. For example, let's say I go over to a friend's house, and he has this really neat rock on his desk. It has maybe a fossil in it or something. It's a fossil rock. And I say, hey, where did you get that fossil from? You know, there's three basic responses he could give me. One, he could say, well, I found it. Maybe he was out hiking at Thousand Hills, and he finds this fossil laying on the ground. He, found, he finds it. Secondly, he could say, well, I bought it. You know, I, I work and earn some money, and I bought it. Saw it in a store or whatever. So I found it, bought it. Thirdly, he could get it as a gift. It's a present that was given to him by someone. And each of these things has a spiritual parallel in terms of how we as Christians come to belong to the Lord. And so someone comes up to you and they say, well, how did you come to belong to Christ? You could say, first of all, well, he found me, right? He found me. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So here's a guy, he's digging around in this field, and he finds this treasure. He finds it. And one of the ways we can view this parable, there's, I think there's several different things you can get from it, but one way you can view this parable is as a picture of Christ who came into this world, the field, he finds a treasure, his people, and he gives everything he has at the cross in order to possess it. And we see this again in Luke 15. Jesus gives a series of parables about things being lost and then being found. First of all, he talks about this sheep. He says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then he talks about this lost coin. What woman, if she has ten silver coins, loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and says, Rejoice with me, I found the coin which I had lost. And then lastly, he tells that parable about the two sons. And we usually call it the parable of the prodigal son because that's where the emphasis is at on the son who went away. But after the son returns, the father says, We had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. You see, he's found. And I think that's probably where John Newton got the idea for that line in Amazing Grace. He says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And so one of the reasons we come together like this here this morning is to praise God that He found us. That He found us. We belong to Christ this morning because He found us. And so first of all, you can come to belong to the Lord, or one way you come to belong to God. All these are true of every Christian, really. But one aspect of belonging to the Lord is that He found you. Secondly, you come to belong to the Lord because He bought you. He purchased you. I already mentioned this in passing uh, from that parable there with the man who found the treasure in the field. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? If you're not your own, well, who are you? You're Christ. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 
So you've been purchased. You're not your own any longer. You belong to Him. And then 1 Peter 1. Let's turn to this one. 1 Peter 1. Verse 17. Peter says, If you address as Father... The one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now listen, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but how were you redeemed? With precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So you were bought, you were purchased, you were redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold. I mean, those things are precious in the eyes of men, but precious in the sight of God is the blood of His Son that purchased His people. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her, and for her life He died. And one of my favorite songs, Victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. Sought me and bought me. One of the ways you measure the value of something is by how much it costs for you in order to obtain it. Uh, I was looking online yesterday just kind of for fun. I, I got to thinking, I wonder what the most expensive watch in the world is. You know, And that's just kind of one of those questions that's ripe for a Google search. And uh, it, it pulled up a page. And the, by the way, the most expensive watch is $5 million. Um, but the first watch on that list that I saw, it did not look all that impressive. I mean, it looked like a pretty ordinary watch until you see the price tag. It was $1.5 million for this watch. And now when you see the price tag, it kind of puts the watch in a little bit different light. You know, you look at it a little bit differently now. All of a sudden, it's, it doesn't look so bad maybe anymore. But, but anyway, the point is one of the ways you measure the value of something is by how much it costs to obtain it. But think about this. If the value of something is measured by the cost it takes to obtain it, then what does that tell us about the value of believers in the sight of God? I mean, $1.5 million is a drop in the ocean compared to the price that God Himself paid in order to redeem His people. Again, Peter says, "...knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood. I mean, that one truth alone should put to death any doubts about the way that God views His children and how precious they are in His sight. The fact that He would pay that price in order to redeem them. So, we belong to Christ. We were lost and He found us. We belong to Him because He bought us. And then thirdly, we belong to Christ because we were given to Him as a gift. We were given to Christ as a gift. Now, when we think about gifts in the spiritual realm, we think about this idea of giving in the New Testament. Most of us probably think immediately of the Father giving His Son for our salvation. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He what? Gave His only begotten Son. So there's this thing of the Father giving the Son for the salvation of His people. But there's also another kind of giving that's talked about, and this is in John 6. Let's turn there. The Father gives His Son, but also the Father gives believers to His Son to be saved. John 6, verse 35. 
This is after Jesus feeds the multitude here, and they come looking for him, and and he says this, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now here it is. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so a people given to the Son, Christians given to the Son as a gift in order for them to be redeemed. And then also in John 17, I'll just read these to you. This comes up again several times. John 17. Jesus is praying to his Father. He says, You gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. He's saying, Father, you gave them to me. He goes on, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. So what this means is that if you're a Christian here this morning, the reason why you are is because the Father gave you as a gift to his Son. He gave you as a gift to His Son. I mean, this is incredible. Every time we see a a person converted, this is what we should be thinking. We should be thinking God just gave another gift to His Son. That's, That's the way that these verses talk about it. The church is God the Father's love gift to His Son. And I like the way one brother put it. He said this, When a sinner comes to Christ in the commitment of faith, when the rebellious will is renewed and tears of penitence begin to flow, It is because a mysterious transaction has been taking place between the persons of the Godhead. The Father has been making a presentation, a donation, to His own Son. Perish the thought that coming to Christ finds its explanation in the sovereign determination of the human will. It finds its explanation in the sovereign will of God the Father. When a soul comes to Christ, this event is the reflex of effectual donation of that person by the Father to the Son. And if any person has that childlike faith, whereby Christ has made wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, whereby He is made precious as all in all, be assured that God the Father took delight in you. He's saying, if anyone, if you have faith here this morning, if you have faith in Christ here this morning, be assured that God the Father took delight in you and took delight in causing raptures of joy to spring up in the breast of His own Son. The Father presented you to Christ in the effectual donation of His grace. Take no credit or glory to yourself. Incredible. So in summary then, three different ways that a Christian belongs to Christ. We belong to Him because He found us. We belong to Him because He bought us. He purchased us. And then thirdly, we belong to Him because we were given to Him as a gift 
from the Father to the Son. Well, that was kind of a long introduction, but the rest of the time here this morning, then what I want to do is look at five truths uh, that are related to this idea of belonging to the Lord. Different implications, different things that come out of this truth of what it means to belong to the Lord. So five things here this morning. First of all, belonging to the Lord implies ownership. It implies ownership. We talked about this a little bit before when we talked about Christ purchasing His people. But I'm thinking mainly here about the passages that speak of believers as being God's possession. We are His possession. In the Old Testament, the entire nation of Israel was spoken of as God's possession. Psalm 135.4, it says, The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Could also be translated his special treasure. Deuteronomy 7.6, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for what? His own possession. Or again, his special treasure could be translated out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then in the New Testament, Peter takes that verse from Deuteronomy and he actually applies it to the church. He says this in 1 Peter 2.9, and we can just turn there. Shouldn't be too far from it. An amazing thing here. This verse that was originally spoken to the nation of Israel is now applied to the church, the people of God under the new covenant. First Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are God's own possession. And then Paul says in Titus 2 that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. But not only is that true of the church as a whole, but it's also true of individual Christians. Again, Paul says, we read this already in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you're not your own, but have been bought with a price. So what I want us to see here on this point is that belonging to the Lord carries with it this idea of ownership. We are His possession. We are God's possession. We've been bought with a price, and He owns us. And I love the way this is pictured in Isaiah 44, talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It says, I will pour water. God is speaking. He says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Now listen to this. This one will say, I am the Lord's. I'm the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. Write that on your hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. And I think the life of Paul is such a perfect illustration of this, of this truth. From the moment that he met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, Paul was a man who was possessed. He realized, he was conscious of the fact that he was no longer in charge of his life, that he was no longer in control. Christ had conquered him, and Paul had written on his hand, belonging to the Lord. 
And you see it all throughout his letters. He calls himself the bondservant of the Lord. It's not just because he wore chains in jail. It's because he realized, I belong to him. I'm his bondservant, belonging to the Lord. He said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And you really, I think you could sum up the whole life of Paul with those five words. No longer I, but Christ. And really, every Christian could say the same thing. So I would ask you this morning, have you been conquered by Christ? And really, this is a test. I mean, this is a test of true conversion. Have you been conquered by Christ? A Christian is someone who has been conquered and is possessed by another person. Every true believer would gladly say, no longer I, but Christ. Every true believer would say that. It rises up out of their hearts. You realize you don't belong to yourself anymore. So do you have a sense this morning that you're not the one who is ultimately in control of your life? And if you're still the one who's in control, if you're still calling on all the shots, you're not a Christian. That's the bottom line. Because the first thing that happens when you repent is you give up being in control of your life and you put yourself into the hands of another. You put yourself into the hands of Christ. A Christian belongs to Christ and rejoices to say, I love my master. I will not go out free. Secondly, then, belonging to the Lord implies security and protection. Security and protection. I mentioned earlier this watch that costs $1.5 million to purchase. Now, I can imagine that if somebody buys that watch... They're, not, they're going to take pretty good care of it. You know, you're going to pay a million and a half dollars for something, you're going to take pretty good care of it. You're not going to treat it like one of those $5 plastic jobs at Walmart, you know. And if you've ever bought something that was costly to you, or if you've ever been given something that's precious to you, you know what this is like. You take extra pains to take care of it, to make sure that it's secure, to protect it. Why? Because it's precious to you, because, or maybe because it costs so much for you to obtain it. But if that is true for us, again, how much more is it true for God? If we would bend over backwards to protect something that was precious to us, how much more is God going to make sure that we, his treasured possession, is protected and secure? If we would take extra good care of something because it was so costly for us to obtain, how much more is God going to take care of his possession that was purchased at the greatest imaginable cost to him? It's for this reason that Jesus says in Luke 21, You will be hated by all because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair will perish. He says, No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. And then we have this tremendous passage in John 10. Let's turn to that one. We're talking about being secure and protected as God's possession. John chapter 10, verse 27. You'll remember that Jesus is talking with these Pharisees here. And He's telling them how He is the good shepherd. And He says this in verse 27. He says, "...My sheep hear My voice." And I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And you have to read this closely here, but Jesus is heaping assurance upon assurance here to make sure that we get the point. First, he says that his sheep will never perish. I mean, that really is enough. That ends the whole discussion. Jesus says, my sheep will never perish. He could have stopped right there. But then he goes on and he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So believers are pictured as being right there in Christ's hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, that's, that's enough, Lord. But no, he goes on. He says, oh, or he goes on and he says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So no one can take them from my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's like, all right, well, that's enough. No, one more thing. He says, I and the Father are one. It's like, by the way, the Father and I are in this together. And we're going to marshal all of our combined forces to make sure that these things come to pass, that these things are true. It's assurance upon assurance to his people that he will secure and protect us and keep us as his possession. I mean, when we read verses like this, it should remind us of that hymn that says, What more can he say than to you he has said? What more do you need him to say for you to believe that he's going to take care of you, that he's going to protect you, that he's going to make sure you're secure? He gives us assurance upon assurance for us to know and believe that we belong to him and that he will be our security and our protection. Thirdly, belonging to the Lord implies provision. And Jesus devotes a good-sized chunk of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to this. So let's turn to Matthew 6. We won't read all the way through this. It's a pretty familiar passage. But Matthew 6, just read a few verses here to get a feel for it. Again, belonging to the Lord implies provision. Matthew 6, 31. And Jesus has been talking here, starting in verse 24, about no one can serve two masters, no one can serve God and wealth. And he says, for this reason, do not be worried about your life. And then he goes on and talk about the clothing and food and so on. And then in verse 31, he kind of sums everything up and he says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Five times from verse 24 to verse 34, and six times if you use a literal on one of the verses in the margin. But five times Jesus says, do not worry. Five times, do not worry. And we're told here in verse 32 the reason why we're not to worry. He says, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And I'm so thankful. I've thought of this several different times in the, since my wife and I have been married. And um, you, know, you wonder where where things are going to come from. and But it's been so helpful to me to realize the way that Jesus says this. He says, Your heavenly Father knows that you need 
all these things. He doesn't take some kind of super spiritual position and say, look, God's not concerned about physical things. He's not concerned about food. and I mean, those, that's just physical stuff. That's worldly stuff. That's not what he says. He says, your heavenly Father knows you need that stuff. It's not that he's not concerned about it. He knows you need it. He doesn't just say he knows you want it. He says he knows that you need it. He knows that you do need those things. So because God knows, you don't have to worry about it. That's the point. Worrying is out of place in the life of a child of God. It doesn't fit. Worry does not fit in the life of a child of God because God has undertaken to provide for our every need. He knows that we need these things. I mean, imagine Bill Gates coming home, and I think he has, I think, three kids. One of them is seven years old. It's a, he has a daughter that's seven. Imagine Bill Gates going home, and his seven-year-old daughter is there just in tears and just racking sobs and cannot get her to stop crying. And finally, after a long, long time, he's able to get her to calm down. He's, honey, why, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And she says, well, I'm, I'm just worried about if there's going to be food on the table tonight. You know, where is the food going to come from? I mean, you see how absurd that is? Bill Gates' daughter worrying about whether there's going to be food on the table tonight? It's, I mean, it's ridiculous. But what do we do all the time? We're that little girl all the time crying and worrying and wondering where things are going to come from. Is God going to provide? Is he going to come through? I mean, it's absurd with Bill Gates, but it's even more absurd for someone who belongs to the Lord to worry about their needs being met. Gates has a lot of money, but even he can't match the riches and glory in Christ Jesus that we have to draw upon. So again, worry is out of place because of who we belong to, because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Remember, the Lord redeemed Israel out of Egypt, and they were led around in the wilderness for 40 years. And it says this in Deuteronomy 2, The Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. You have not lacked a thing. That's a wonderful way of saying it. You've not lacked a thing. And it's true of every Christian. I mean, has anyone here lacked anything? Any believer? Has God let you down? Has there ever been a time? when I mean, there might have been some close calls, and you're wondering where things are going to come from. But you haven't lacked a thing. God is faithful. Sometimes the Lord, back there in the, in the wilderness, sometimes He would feed the people and meet their needs in ways that were clearly supernatural. He had the water from the rock, the manna from heaven. But here in Deuteronomy 2, right before this verse that I just read, here's what God says. He says, you shall buy food. He's talking about the, going through the, uh, the land with Esau's descendants. And he says, you shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat. And you shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. You see, God provide, He can provide water from a rock or manna from heaven. But there's also times, the majority of the time, what he does is he says, okay, take your money and go to the store and buy something to eat. Because God has to provide the money too, you see. It's just as supernatural for you to have money in your wallet as it is for God to make water come out of a rock. I mean, your job is supernaturally provided. The strength that you have to do that job is supernaturally given. 
Everything. It's supernatural. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. He provides it. Whether it's from a rock or whether it's just by working at your job and getting some money to go to the store with. You see, it's all from Him. So if you belong to the Lord this morning, Jesus Himself, and this is something that I need to be reminded of all the time, Jesus Himself commands you not to worry. It's a command. Do not worry, He said. Do not worry about your physical needs being met. You can be assured that the Lord will take care of His own. And He's been faithful to do that. Two more. Number four. Belonging to the Lord implies responsibility. It implies responsibility. If you're born into a royal family, much more is expected of you than of others. For example, you have to talk a certain way. You have to dress a certain way. You have to walk a certain way. I mean, everything is different when you're born into a royal family. And it's easy to see the parallel here. Every Christian has been born again into a royal family. You're a child of the king. And because of that, much more is expected of you than is expected of other people. For example, you have to talk a certain way. What's Paul say? Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You have to dress a certain way. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. And also put on the full armor of God, that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You also have to walk a certain way. Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 1 Thessalonians 2, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. So even as a Christian, you're royally born, and there's responsibilities there. You have to talk a certain way, dress a certain way, walk a certain way, spiritually speaking. I was reading the other day uh, this book about on the Revolutionary War, and at the time of the war, George III was the king of England, and he succeeded to the throne at age 22, uh, 22 years old. And at the time, and I, I just I love this, at the time of his succession, at the time that he became king, his mother admonished him by saying this. Has anyone heard this before? This is what his mom said to him at the time that he became king. She said, George, be a king. That's it. George, be a king. And I thought, that is so wonderful. Because that is exactly the way that the New Testament speaks to us as Christians. You see, what was his mom saying to him? She was saying, George, you're a king. Act like it. Now is the time to start acting like it. And that's the exact same thing that God does in the New Testament when he talks about growth and grace and growing as a Christian. He says, you are my treasured possession. This is who you are. You belong to me. You're my treasure. Now act like it. You're a child of God. Now act like it. You see, it's not act like something so you can get something. It's this is who you are already. This is who I've made you to be. Now act like it. George, be a king. <laughs> if you get nothing else out of this message, maybe you'll remember that. There's a lot of truth to that. George, be a king. All right, lastly then, belonging to the Lord gives meaning to existence. One of the things that every 
person has to face, and I'm thinking this morning particularly of those of you here who are not Christians, one of the things you have to face is the fact of your own existence. Whether you like it or not, the fact is you're here in this world. You're here. Whether you like it or not, you're here. You exist right here and right now. And you're going to have to deal with that because it's a fact that fa- that's faces you every day. Every day you get up in the morning, you're here, you're existing. You're going to have to deal with that. But the problem is, is not just the fact that you exist, but it's the fact that you have a sinful existence. You're at enmity with God. You're at war with God. You're in rebellion against Him. You're running away from the only one who can give meaning to your existence. In Colossians 1, Paul's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, By Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. See that all things repeated over and over again. What's the point? The point is Christ is the center of everything. Christ is the center of everything. He's the center of all of creation. He's the center of all of history. The entire universe revolves around a person, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. All things have been created through Him and for Him, and that includes you. And outside of Christ is nothing but darkness and meaninglessness and purposelessness. And every once in a while, God will give you a little glimpse of what this means. Maybe you're eating lunch with a group of friends, and all your friends are Christians, and you're not. And they start talking about the Lord, and you feel like you're on the outside. You feel like you don't belong. And some of you haven't been Christians very long. You might remember what this is like, sitting there back there and we're eating lunch. Everybody's talking about the Lord, and you just feel like you don't belong. And the reason why you feel that way is because you are on the outside. You don't belong. That's the point. You don't belong. But the problem is worse than just not belonging in this group of friends. That same feeling, and this is the thing to get, that same feeling of not belonging is the reality of your entire life in this world. That's the reality of your life in this world. You see, this is God's world. He made it. He created it. He sustains it. The Christian can say, this is my Father's world. That's true. But the lost person can't say that. You've cut yourself off from the only one who can give meaning to your existence. Not only are you on the outside when it comes to friends of yours that are Christians, but you're on the outside everywhere you go. You're lost. See, that's what when we talk about being lost, that's one of the things it means. I mean, literally, you are lost. You have you you don't belong. You don't have a home. And I think of that story that Dick told about that girl there in Germany, who they were trying to minister to and. Dick was going to walk her home and ask her, where, where do you live? Is that right? Ask her, where do you live? And she said, I don't know. I don't know. And asked, well, you know, it's like, what? You don't know where you live? I don't know. You see what she's saying? She, she got a glimpse of something here. I, you don't know where you live. You don't belong in this world. You don't have a home here. You're lost. It's the reality of your existence. But see, this is the thing, and I want to end with this. That girl did not know where she lived in an ultimate sense. But see, you don't have to wonder 
where you live because God has already told you your home is with Him. That's where you belong. You were created for Him and that's where you belong. Remember that prodigal son there. When he came to his senses and finally he came to repent, he, what did he say? He said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home to my father. And I'm going to tell him what I've done. And I'm going to repent and confess. He went home. And so that's what you need to do. If you don't know the Lord this morning, go home. You have a home. You know where that is. The home is with the Lord. But you have to go to Him. Go home to Him. He will in no way cast you out. Even you this very day can belong to the Lord. And everything else we've been talking about here could be true of you. Belonging to Him. Go home. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So a few thoughts then on belonging to the Lord. Paul says you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So one more thing for us this morning to rejoice about and to encourage one another with, that we belong to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I think of this quote uh, that I read here. And Lord, we don't want to take any credit whatsoever for what You've done in our lives. Lord, we know were it not for You, we wouldn't even be here. Lord, we don't know where we would be. Lost and dead in sin and still running away from You. And so, Lord, we thank You this morning. We thank You that You drew us. We thank You that You opened our eyes. We thank You that You accepted us into Your home. We thank You that You made us Your treasured possession, that You gave us to Your Son. Oh God, help us, Lord. Help us to walk worthy of this high calling that we've received. Help us to be what You've called us to be as children of the King. And Lord, help us to go forth. Help us to hold out the word of life to those that don't know You, that they too might belong to You. And I pray, Lord, for those here this morning, oh God, touch their hearts. Draw them to Yourself. Open their eyes. Give them something. Give them a little glimpse, Lord, that they would want to know You, that they would want to go home to You, that they would want to belong to You. We look to You, Lord. Bless the rest of our time. Bless our fellowship. We ask for Your presence. In Jesus' name, Amen.